and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ now and always. I want to start this morning with, uh, let's call it a game, a comparison. Everybody likes games, right? Call it a comparison game. The rules are extraordinarily simple, okay? I am going to list two different things side by side, and I want you, this is interactive, I want you to tell me which one is more valuable, okay? Which one's more valuable? A successful career and thriving business or heaven? Which is more valuable? Holding the winning billion dollar mega millions ticket? Or heaven? Okay. Take it a level deeper. Which is more important? Your spouse? Or heaven? Hopefully nobody's in the doghouse for that answer later. <laughs> Which is more important, the love and affection of your children or heaven? Which is more important, the beautiful chateau in French wine country or heaven? Heaven. Heaven, heaven, heaven. I, I, I heard that answer, I think, from everybody. I, I don't know that I noticed anyone dissenting from that general chorus of heaven. It's really easy to sit here in church and, and when we're in Bible studies and talking to Christian friends about the, the Jesus-y things and stuff like that and, and say, yeah, heaven, heaven is all important. But then, when we're done with those conversations, when we're done with church, do our lives really reflect that attitude, that, the, the, those pious thoughts and words that we have? Right? It's very easy to say that there is nothing that I could gain that is worth losing heaven. But do your words still reflect that when you are maybe speaking to one of your children who is making choices in life that God says are, are leading them away from heaven? We can sit here and we can sing, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. But then when we go out, does the, the devotion of our daily lives truly emphasize that heavenly treasure is valuable above all? Or if somebody looked at my life, would they say that what I truly treasure is earthly stuff. There can be a frequent disparity, right, between what we preach and what we practice, between what we say and what we do. And so the question that we want to answer this morning is this. How do we refocus ourselves on the things of God, on the heavenly treasures so that our hearts are not anchored here on these earthly things. And to do that, we are going to be looking at kind of a, a snapshot. It's almost like a, like a summary of the life and faith of Abraham. We're going to read about that in Hebrews 11. Before we do that, though, we need to, we need to talk first about the crucial nature of faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 is sometimes referred to as the great faith chapter of the Bible. And it lists all of these different Old Testament examples, people, men and women, who were faced with um, difficult decisions or a tough path that God told them to walk. And yet sometimes, sometimes there might have been a temptation to take the easier route, to, to just kind of throw in the towel. Yet they, they became heroes of the faith. Why? Because they obeyed God and listened to God. And yet this chapter starts out in the first three verses by exploring the nature of faith. What is faith? And we're going to find that here 
in Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3, which says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. Sorry, I need to read in here. That's too far away for me. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded for. Commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So in general, faith. Um, faith is, is trust, right? Trust in uh, something that is, is unseen or something uh, that, is, that is unsensed, right? It, it's trust in something that is intangible. I can't taste it. I can't look at it. I can't hear it, right? And so sometimes um, members of the non-believing community will, will launch attacks against those of the Christian faith or even of religious faith in general saying, well, what you have is just blind trust, right? You believe that because... Um, somebody told you to, or maybe because you're, you're just not a strong enough person to handle life on your own. You need faith in God as a crutch. Maybe they'll take a slightly different tack and say, well, it's just bias that's been built within you, right? Because that's the way that you were raised, maybe, or because some people are hardwired that way. Uh, but when we look at faith in Scripture, neither of those things really constitute the nature of faith. Right? Yes, faith is trust in something that is unseen or unsensed, but faith is not blind trust or biased trust. Faith is trust that is based on evidence. For example, do you believe that love is a real thing? Yes? Okay. Can you touch love? Can you hear love? Can you hold love? In your arms? No. Uh, and yet, my two-year-old daughter trusts that I have love for her. Why? Because she has a lot of evidence that supports it, right? The time that I spend playing with her, talking with her, the, um, the, 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 the time that I spend reading books to her, or simply just like snuggling on the couch watching a movie with her. And so when she's standing there at the edge of the pool, and is going to jump into my waiting arms, she trusts that I love her and that I'm going to catch her and not just step to the side and let her sink to the bottom and drown, right? Or maybe you can think of it um, in the terms of the last time you had strep throat. What? Well, you took an antibiotic, right? There was a doctor who told you that was going to make your strep throat better. Now, can you see the... I don't even know how these work, but can you see like the little antibiotics like, like punching and headbutting the little streptococci bacteria in the back of your throat? No. So why do you trust that it's going to work? Because the last time you had strep and you took one of those things, you had the evidence that supported it, right? The evidence mainly being that you started to feel better, right? Trust. Trust is... is Something, right? Trust is this kind of intangible thing, but um, when we're talking about the Christian faith, it's not, it's not blind trust, right? We have, we have evidence upon which that is based. And so, as we bring that back into what we're talking about today, right, we're, we're going to kind of come back around to this idea a little bit later, but for now, uh, just kind of tuck this idea away that understanding the nature of faith is also crucial to having a proper understanding of heavenly value. Now we're going to 
dive into that example that I mentioned earlier. An example from the life of a man named Abraham. Right? We read about him in that uh, Old Testament lesson. Abraham is one of those men of faith that is listed in Hebrews 11. Now, Abraham was not born in Canaan or modern-day Israel. Okay? He was born and raised in a land called Ur of the Chaldeans. Right? Uh, but his father, Terah, was the one who actually decided that they were going to move to Canaan. Patriarchal society, oldest male gets to make the decisions for everybody else. And so he uprooted his sons, their wives, all of his family, the servants, the cattle, everything, and started this move toward Canaan. However, when he got to a land called Haran, he said, that's good enough. I'm old. Let's just stay here. Okay? And that's actually where Terah died. Gogo was not finished with his plans to bring Abraham into Canaan. And so there in the land of Haran, God called to Abraham again. And he said, I want you to go where I'm going to tell you to go. I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless all peoples on earth through you. And that's kind of what gives us the, the backdrop, the background for the next verses that we're going to be reading here. Next chunk of verses from Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now it's worth knowing that Abram was uh, an incredibly wealthy and powerful individual for this time and, and in this area of the world. He was a, a peer of the kings that were around him. When he went down to Egypt at one point during his life, he was welcomed and acknowledged by the Pharaoh of Egypt himself. Uh, we know from his, uh, the accounts in Genesis of his life that he had so many servants and hired men in his household that he was literally able to raise up an army and defeat not just the army of one other king, but of four other kings in order to rescue his nephew Lot and some other people who had been abducted in the nearby cities. Now, I have to imagine that it must have been a very real temptation for a man that wealthy and that powerful to say, you know what, I'm done with this whole nomad thing. Pulling up my tent pegs in the morning, moving during the day, only to put them down again and repeat the whole thing the next day or in a couple of days. Now, why don't I build my own city, build my own foundations, enjoy the comforts of life, take it easy, and use all of this wealth that I have to indulge in all the earthly pleasures that I have been forsaking? That would have been a lot easier than the life of a nomad. And yet Abraham understood what God's plans for him were. Compare him to somebody else in the Old Testament. If you were here last week, you would have heard about him in the Old Testament reading. 
a man named Solomon. Now, Solomon was also fabulously wealthy and powerful. He was the son of the famous King David. And he was a peacetime king. His father David's rule was, was marred by a lot of warfare and strife. Solomon, however, was enabled to live in peace and, and be a builder. He was the one who built a temple, the temple, that was so magnificent that people from foreign countries would come just to get a glimpse of it. He was responsible for many great architectural features and buildings under his watchful guidance, there were public parks and, and reservoirs, lakes that were created in Jerusalem and in Israel. And yet, somewhere along the way, Solomon lost sight of God. He became so attached to the things of this earth, so attached to the things that he himself, uh, much of which he had built, that his heart strayed away from the Lord. And he did by his own admission later in life, he did indulge in every imaginable pleasure that he could possibly find. Now, what was the difference between these two people? Both of them knew God. Both of them, in fact, even had direct conversations with the Lord in Scripture. The difference is that one of them understood a greater reality. And the other one still had to learn. And we see what that, that greater reality was that Abraham knew in the next and final chunk of verses that we're going to be looking through this morning. Verses 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, Abraham understood that no matter how much he had, you can never create heaven on earth. Solomon tried. And boy, do we ever try to do the same sometimes. Right? Even if we would never like say this with our mouths, the record of our lives shows it to be true. That, that so often we believe that if, if we could just have the, the big house on the spacious lot with the fancy car in the garage, the beautiful wife, the handsome husband, the happy, well-adjusted kids filling the bedroom, then, then we have what's really valuable. Or, or maybe, maybe you think that, that if you could just be the star grade school, middle school, high school athlete, or if you're past that age, if your kids or grandkids can be that person, well, then you've got something that is really, truly worth it. Sometimes this can even take on a religious flair, like a churchy kind of flair. If I'm the one that, that people like to go to for my opinions and my advice in the congregation, if I'm the one whose um, decisions and opinions people really respect, then I have what's valuable. Right? The problem, though, really isn't so much 
that we value earthly things too much, probably. God has given us blessings and, and he wants us to enjoy those blessings that he's given us. More likely and more often, I think, the problem is this, that we value heavenly treasure too little. And there's a key reason why. Typically, when we assign personal value or worth to something, we do so on the basis of experience. Now, sometimes the experience of somebody else might pique my interest a little bit, right? Your friend tells you that they just had the, the world's best hamburger at this new restaurant in town. That might, that might pique enough of your interest to go and try it yourself, but until you do, you're probably not going to be running around telling everybody else about it and putting your stamp of approval on it. However, when you go try that for yourself and you've had that experience and you know this is indeed the world's best burger, that's when you start to value it very highly, so highly that you will probably tell other people. We assign things based on experience. We assign value based on experience, but doesn't this kind of lead us into a brick wall? Because you can't experience heaven, can you? You can't spend a day walking those uh, gold-paved streets. You can't even spend an hour elbow-to-elbow -elbow with the loved ones that you have lost and have gone there before you immersed in the presence of God. And so that brings us to our, our next key point, one that might seem a little bit shocking or even counterintuitive, which is this, that we can't properly understand heaven's value. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond our experience, and so it's kind of beyond our grasp. But I'm going to tell you something. That's okay. In fact, when we knock down that expectation that we have, that we need to experience something in order to truly value it, this actually paves the way for something altogether better and more beautiful. Because there is another way that we assign value. We also can assign value to something by looking at the price tag, at what it costs in order to obtain it. I'm going to show you two paintings here. This first one is a, a watercolor by the, famous by the famous painter known as my daughter Jane. She made it a couple of days ago. Second one is an abstract piece made by the late artist Jackson Pollock. Now, to the untrained eye, you might look at those two things and, and you might not really be able to decide which one's worth more. I, I, I believe that I have seen paintings like this that can fetch a couple million dollars at auction, and so maybe I should give it a shot. However, in reality, one of these paintings will fetch a million dollars at auction, and the other one will probably only fetch a temporary place on our refrigerator, right? The price tag determines the value, right? What it costs to obtain that determines the value. So what does heaven cost? What's its price tag? It costs more than your devotion to God and to his commands. It costs a whole lot more than your general kindness or the sacrifices that you make in life. It costs more than the money that you put into the offering plate or that you give in charity 
to the poor. In fact, all of those things together are like putting up a, a single penny to try and buy a, 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 a mansion on a private island. What you bring to the table can never be enough to buy that. So what's the cost? We find an answer to that question in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, which says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb chosen without blemish or defect. What does the blood of God cost? Like, what is the life of God worth? When I was little, I used to think the word invaluable meant that something was worthless and had no value. Now that I'm older, I realize it's the exact opposite. It means that something's value is beyond estimation. What is the life of God worth? It's invaluable. It is beyond human comprehension. It is beyond our mind's grasp and understanding. And yet that is the price that God pays to obtain heaven for you. The Bible tells us that when Jesus, after his crucifixion, was sealed away and buried in his tomb, that all of your sin and all of your guilt was buried there and sealed there with him. And that when, those, when that tomb door burst open again on Easter morning, that heaven's door and eternal life became open to you. See that cost. See what heaven is truly worth. Why can I have faith that heaven's values are, are greater than any earthly treasures I might have? How do we refocus ourselves on the things of God so that our eyes are, and our hearts are not anchored here on this earth, but above? It's because faith trusts that heaven is invaluable because we have this evidence that its price tag is also invaluable. And as we immerse ourselves in this story, as we get to know our God more and more, as we see truly all of the details of that story better and better, as we listen to his voice and we hear his promises, faith root, faith's roots also grow deeper and we begin to properly value heaven more and more the way that God intends for us to do and we will stop settling for the cheap knockoff earthly things because we know that the real deal is so much more satisfying. It's kind of like the difference between these. Name brand, Milk's favorite cookie Oreos, And the great value, Walmart produced Twist and Shout chocolate sandwich cookies. Now, I could try a bite of one of these great value things. In fact, I did last night. I'm not going to today because I realized then people have to listen to me chewing for 30 seconds over a microphone, which is not pleasant for anybody, including myself. I could try one of these things, though, and say, you know what, that, that, that's all right. You know, give me a glass of milk and a few of those. I'd be happy. But if you told me that all I had to do was like wait five minutes and then somebody was going to bust out the real deal Oreos and I could have like an entire sleeve of those, 
It's no contest, right? The real thing far exceeds the knockoff. And Abraham knew that too, not about cookies, but about the difference between his earthly wealth and those heavenly treasures. And so he would not trade away his heavenly country and the city with lasting foundations for an earthly home and foundations that would ultimately crumble into dust. And we know that too. We see heaven's value because we see that its price tag is, is invaluable. The blood and life of the Son of God himself. With trust in what God says in his word about what's coming to us, our hearts will not be anchored and fixed here because we know that God has something so much better in store for us. Amen. Thank you.